Good evening, everybody. Lovely to see you here. For those of you I've not met, my name's Jill White. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Nursing and Midwifery here at the University of Sydney. Um, and absolutely delighted to welcome you to the first of um, our faculty's uh, forays into uh, Sydney Ideas. And we couldn't hope to have a better beginning than to have um, Professor Kate White uh, speak with us about her work tonight. Um, before I start, I want to just acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. This was, is, and ever will be Aboriginal land on which we, on which we meet. And it's very important to this university because we see the lineage of learning and talking and thinking ideas as having started then, uh, not just with the beginnings of this university. So in the tradition of thinking and talking and challenging ideas, um, let me just say a few words about Kate and then let Kate uh, talk to you about something very important. Um, Kate, I've had the pleasure of knowing for my um, time of uh, seven years here at the university. Kate was here well before I uh, arrived and was director of research at the time I arrived. Shortly after that, um, Kate was successful in gaining the chair in cancer nursing that was at the time co-funded between the um, uh, New South Wales Cancer Institute, uh, Sydney Cancer Centre and the faculty here at the university. And that remained for five years and has only is just in the process of ceasing, and the Sydney Local Health District and the university are going to co-sponsor that really important chair uh, into the future. And the reason that we do that is that it's a wonderful example of the sorts of collaborative work that clinicians, patients, and academics can do to really get the best for patients into the future and for their families. So Kate is based in Lifehouse, um, works with the faculty and works with um, particularly Royal Prince Alfred Hospital but the whole rest of the Sydney Local Health District and in fact has been for the last five years working um, across the whole state. But her work doesn't stay there. Kate teaches in Malaysia frequently and um, annually in China um, in her specialty area to try and expand uh, their knowledge of the evidence base for caring for people with cancer. She also has very strong research relationships through um, several research institutions in Europe and in the UK. But for Kate, I know um, her connections back here in Sydney are particularly special and, uh, and particularly her work uh, with clinicians. Um, and I think that a lot of uh, the outcomes for Kate are um, made all the more uh, precious by seeing the work translated into practice and changes for um, the improvement in the care for um, patients and their families. Kate also does uh, a lot of work with Canteen and you'll see we've um, co-badged this evening uh, with Canteen and uh, uh, Associate Professor Pandora Patterson is um, a conjoint appointment with our uh, faculty uh, and she's the Director of Research at Canteen. I'm not going to take any more of your precious time and uh, keep you away from hearing from Kate, but I will return at the end of her conversation. 
she'll talk with you for probably about 45 minutes and then we'll have about 20 minutes for questions and answers and I'll um, help to moderate that. So um, as Kate is speaking, please keep track of the questions that you'd like to ask. So, Kate. Thank you, Jill, and I'd like to thank everyone for coming out tonight um, to hear about this. Um, I just would be useful to know how many are in the audience are health professionals? Okay, uh, parents? Good. Okay, just bear with me then because uh, this is a presentation where I was really focusing on what is it that parents need to know um, to, one, reduce their anxieties and concerns when they're experiencing a cancer diagnosis and how it might impact. Um, but also, what do we understand is the impact on um, children of all ages when an, an, a parent has cancer. I think the overriding message, though, whilst we'll be focusing on some of the challenges that both children, adolescents and parents face, is that we know that children manage this situation. And I think that's the really important message to take home. So we know that a cancer diagnosis, when it occurs, is really like being sucked into a whirlpool. Um, and in that whirlpool, its effect goes well beyond the individual to their partner, their children of whatever age, parents, sisters, friends, and their social community. Most people feel incredibly ill-prepared for a diagnosis of cancer because there's not much in life that really prepares us for what it's going to be like. Um, even if we've had previous experience with family members, it's very different when it's you. It can be overwhelming and it can be incredibly frightening. And fearful about what the future holds, fearful about how you're actually going to manage the treatments that are being proposed for you and a whole range of other things. And in the midst of this, for a parent, um, one of the big worries they have is, what does this mean for my children or child or um, partner? And in the middle of all that emotional turmoil, trying to think through carefully, what is the best way to support my children through this process? How do I actually communicate this? What are the words that I need to be using? Um, can be a source of incredible anxiety. It is human nature that parents wish to protect their children. That's what our job is as a parent, is to protect our child from adverse things. And in wanting to protect our child or children, it is quite um, natural to want to protect them from the perception that cancer is a very bad thing. And one of the things in that is a desire that can happen, is a desire to not fully disclose what's happening, to not use the word cancer, to not communicate what's going to happen. And this quote from Warden, who writes extensively about bereavement and dealing with life crises, I think really reflects it, where they say that no child can walk between the raindrops. No matter how much protection you put around them, they will know what's going on and they will experience it with you. 
I just wanted to touch on, um, at the outset, who are we talking about when we say children? Because we always say children, but when we use the word children, we're often, in our mind, we're thinking of young children. We're not necessarily thinking of the 19-year-old that hasn't left home yet. Um, or even the 22-year-old that may not have left home yet. Um, it, so it is important to recognise that and I've got up there a range of terms as we all struggle to find a generic term to, discover, to, to describe this group, and one of them that we've come up with is offspring, but it sounds pretty awful to me. I'm from a rural background, and it sounds like something my father would have talked about when it came to the stock. Um, but it is important to recognise that it, regardless of age, it will have some impact. It's not to say that experiencing something negative will automatically lead to something really adverse, but you can't pretend that it's not going to have an impact on the family unit and the children, regardless of age. And age, and in particular, maturity of, that, of the children, is an important thing to take into account. What's important also to recognise is that we have some sense of the things that can actually influence that impact. So what are the things that might make it worse, but also what are the things that will actually reduce the impact and actually help the family to continue to function as a family unit? And when do we consider someone no longer a child? And that's an actually challenging question. My 84-year-old mother told me only six weeks ago that I was still her child. Um, I won't tell you what my response to that was. She was being somewhat bossy. Um, uh, but one of the things that the research that we've been doing with Canteen has highlighted is that the impact of a cancer diagnosis continues for some children as they mature. So what they may have known and understood at the age of 15, three or four years down the track, may be very different and they may have a range of uncertainties and questions. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So what worries patients when we're talking to them, or what worries parents when they're thinking about, I've got cancer, how's this going to impact on my children? So we know they worry about, first and foremost, how am I going to find the words to say this? Um, and, and there's a perception, and this has very much been addressed, I think, by the Cancer Council of New South Wales booklet, that there isn't any help out there. It's really about just making sure people know where the help is and what the resources are. There's a perceived perception, a, a, a concern that I don't really know um, how much information I should give my child or children because I'm not too sure what they actually understand about cancer. I mean, you know, they probably don't really understand what cancer is, do they? So should I even be using the word? And I guess the other thing is that when we seek to protect by not disclosing, often what we're trying to do is reduce the impact, the negative consequences, but what that can lead to is a loss of communication about how someone's feeling, an inability to share thoughts and feelings, a sense of trying to be positive all the time, even on the days that mum or dad probably just does not want to pretend that everything's okay and they're feeling pretty terrible. Um, and a focus on giving ch children information rather than listening, rather than checking in to see how they're going. 
So what do children and young people know about cancer before it has a personal impact on their family unit? And I think this is a really important thing to start with because we have to remember that children are exposed to cancer in many different ways across the lifespan. Very young age, we're saying to them, slip, slap, slop, um, you don't want to get cancer. So clearly cancer is something bad because we've been teaching them that they can't go out and play if they don't have a hat on. And that they can experience very indirect exposure to cancer, mess and beliefs. And I think that's a really important starting point when we're talking with parents, is not just even exploring with them, have they had a family experience, like in the extended family of cancer, but also what have they been involved in that may give them some exposure and some thoughts about it. And as children age, there are many sources of information and things that will influence their understanding um, of what cancer is and what it means. So if you've got mum who's just been diagnosed with breast cancer, we have someone like Angelina Jolie who has taken a step to prevent breast cancer because she was considered to have a high risk. So if you're 14 and your mum has a diagnosis of breast cancer, you might then think, well, that means I've got to have my breasts off as well. So checking in that understanding. Um, I have a very close friend who's just completed all of her treatment and her slightly older children said, so mum, does that mean we can start growing something at home? I don't know if any of you have seen Breaking Bad. Um, but also, most schools and communities are involved in fundraising for cancer services, for support services. So you can't assume that cancer is not a known entity. What is important, though, is having an understanding of what they think cancer is. So what does the research tell us about children? And I think there's a couple of interesting things about the research. And I think one of the first things is most of this research was done in the 1980s, 1990s, and the early 2000s. And it stopped from there. The research, um, there has been, if you look at what we do within the clinical settings, there's been a response to that research. But we really haven't taken it to that next step to say, well, OK, if we needed to do an intervention, what would that look like and how would we know that that would work? Certainly some of the key messages that came out of that research have been taken up by most of the supportive care organisations and integrated into their materials. But we don't know the extent to which these concerns hold true today, with the exception of some research I'll talk about later. Certainly what that research showed us is that children's level of emotional distress was higher than parents thought it was. And I think that's an important thing because we often have a perception or a concept in our mind of what a distressed person will look like. Um, and one of the things that comes through very clearly from young people of all ages is they seek to not disclose. So they don't talk about it so they don't want to get upset. So any distress they keep to themselves. Interestingly, when children were asked about how they were told, there were quite high levels of dissatisfaction. They wanted more information, they felt cheated because they weren't told in a timely fashion and they knew something was going on. 
and more than a third of children um, with a parent of cancer felt that there was actually no real support for them around them. It has been identified that adolescents are especially vulnerable for a whole range of reasons, and we know that adolescents are particularly vulnerable anyway without this happening. But the difficulties that people experience or children experience fundamentally occur in three core areas, in relation to school and schooling, in relation to their friends, because suddenly they're not the same as everyone else. There's, they're experiencing something that they can't easily share because the people they're talking to don't really get it, and um, deterioration in their own physical health. So a colleague of mine, Jane Turner, that I work with, and those of you who work in the cancer community will know Jane. She's a fantastic um, psychiatrist who is, um, does a lot of work around this and is very unpsychiatry, if I can use that word. But I think what she's pulled together here is a very clear uh, way of just breaking down what are the things that we need to put together that would actually help both a child but also a family adjust to a cancer diagnosis. And as you can see, there are obviously things about the parent um, and, and their diagnosis and what's happening for them. How that person responds to the diagnosis of cancer is very much influenced by life events and how they have developed strategies for managing stressful occasions in their past. Certainly we know that when there's worry about finances, it makes things substantially worse. Um, and Talking about not having enough money is actually quite hard, but it can be that thing that's just chewing away at a family and particularly for parents. Worrying about the partner or if the partner doesn't have a good relationship, um, that may make it worse, but most of the time it's the partner that becomes the thing that actually pulls it all together. So they have a very important role to play. Certainly, resilience is an important component in this. So the more resilient a young person is or a child is, and the more we do to foster resilient, the more likely they are to be able to adjust to this change. And that's always going to be influenced by age and maturity. And the extent to which a young person or a child has good relationships with people outside the family is also an important factor. So one of the things that parents um, often talk about is what do I say, how much do I say and how much should I tell you? We know that information um, uh, is a problem uh, if it doesn't include accurate information, if we're not telling them exactly what's happening because what it does is it, it encourages the development of false beliefs and I'll give you some examples of that in a moment. It can lead children to have feelings of guilt um, or increased anxiety. Um, and one of the things that people, um, parents have described is eventually finding that a young child thought that mum got cancer or dad got cancer because they'd been particularly naughty and they'd done something very, very bad and dad was very cross with them. So, and now dad's sick, so it's my fault, particularly in the younger, groups, uh, younger age groups where there's that magical thinking still. And sometimes there's a sense that the child has to fix the problem. One of the things that the early research really highlighted is when a child felt misled, not communicated with, um, even though the intent was to protect them, 
it actually had a profoundly negative impact on the relationship, building mistrust, anger and resentment. So when it, we're talking about this, one of the key things is how do we get the balance right? Because we do need to balance this. It's not about bombarding someone with a whole lot of scary facts and figures and information. So when we talk about balance, it is about the amount of information that you may give a child or children of certain ages, but it's also about what the content of that information should be. But it's also about balancing expectations, your expectations and their expectations. Um, particularly in the older children, um, and sometimes it comes from the grandparents where there's this expectation that they will step up and do more, you know, take on more responsibility and puts an enormous amount of pressure on them. But what are your expectations of what they are and have you ever had that conversation is really important. But the other thing about balance is what can you do as a family to get the balance between managing the day-to-day -day realities of having to have treatment over many months in addition to how do we manage the day-to-day -day family function? What is it we need to put around that so we stay as a family unit or people still get to live their lives um, in a way that we know is important? When it comes to getting the balance right, the type of information and how much is really critical. Um, one of the things we recommend, and there's a wonderful resource, as I mentioned earlier, that the Cancer Council developed about, called Talking About Kids, Talking About Cancer to Kids, is to break the information down into manageable parts. So you don't have to explain all aspects of what the treatment is at the same time that you might give a child the information around what the diagnosis is. It is important to check understanding and to prepare them for the changes that are going to happen. So often what we do is we focus quite naturally on explaining what the chemotherapy is, what the radiotherapy is, what that means. That's a really difficult lot of information for anybody to take on board. But what is probably more important is an understanding about how this is going to impact the child. Particularly in the younger age group where their way of experiencing something and knowing something is about how it impacts on them. That's the only way they can know it. So what does this mean for me? And it may appear selfish, but in actual fact, it's incredibly age appropriate. Um, and preparation for the changes in a parent's physical appearance or function. You know, dad can't play soccer with me. Why, why is that so? You know, why can't he do that? It's not to say you can change those things, but it's giving them an understanding of why it's occurred and when it's likely to get better um, so, that, so that this is not a permanent situation. For teenagers, having mum or dad, particularly mum, suddenly lose her hair due to chemotherapy can be a bit challenging. Um, and, and I think, I uh, don't know if any of you have been following, but um, we've had a, a former cancer patient speaking about telling her child um, that she had cancer. And one of the things that she very intuitively did was that she asked her um, then eight-year-old and then 11 and uh, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, sorry, um, was she okay with her picking her up from school when she had no hair? Because she didn't want her to feel embarrassed or awkward. And that was a real insight, I think, a very intuitive thing to do um, about to, to clarify that because children don't like to be different. 
and they don't like our parents to be different. When we're talking about communication, um, we often talk about language with unintended consequences. Um, and individuals who've been diagnosed with cancer use, talk about this a lot, you know, the be positive, the you'll be right, cancer's curable these days, you know, all that kind of stuff that is meant very well, but in actual fact is not really helpful for the recipient of it. Similarly, children can be on the receiving end from extended family, grandparents, even parents, um, around things that are meant to be encouraging but in actual fact have unintended consequences which can make it worse for the young person. So the intent is positive but the impact is negative. We need you to be strong for your younger sisters and brothers. We need you to be strong for dad while this is happening. That puts an enormous amount of pressure on any young person. Um, you're the man of the house now, or I need you to take over. Um, and I have to say, you're the man of the house now, I hear more from grandparents than that. And I think that's a generational change and a, a sense of wanting to bolster a young person and, you know, say, you can do it, as opposed to, you know, you've got to do it. But what it does when you hear those words, it's very different. Come on, you don't want to see mum, dad, you don't want them to see you crying because you'll only upset them. And, and, and that's a, a really um, treacherous path. There's a series of quotes I've got here that are from young people. Um, Lauren, who was 13 and it was her mum, she actually hid in the bedroom when she cried because she didn't want to upset mum even more by crying. Yet we all know as adults that crying together sometimes is the best therapy. So how do we make it okay for young people to cry with us um, as opposed to feeling like we have to protect each other? One of the things that's really important um, in working out what you say and how you say it and what words is recognising that as children develop that there are different levels of understanding, ability to understand in part by age but also about maturity. And the best person to judge that is the parent. So this is not a role for health professionals. It's up to the parent to determine what, how, when is communicated. This is very generalised. Uh, so, you know, please take that into context um, for the purpose of this talk. But I think just to remind people really that for young people, and by that I mean those up to eight years, they are still in that world of magic thinking, you know, that lovely things where they play those amazing games. Magic thinking is incredibly special. Um, but magic thinking can also think, lead children to think, if I do this, she'll be better. Or I did this, that's why this is a problem. So how you communicate around that is, has to be within the context of understanding that level of maturity and understanding. They have a very authoritarian sense of morality, so there's right and wrong, black and white. Very delighted to say my 13-year-old hasn't moved from there in this aspect at the moment. Um, and a limited capacity to understand how things can happen by chance. That is, their search for reasoning, but why? You know, those of you with children, I'm sure, have had them go, but why? But why does mum have to get sick? But why does it have to happen this way? But why did it have to happen to our family? 
And anxiety is probably the most common emotion which won't be displayed in the normal sort of ways that you may anticipate. So it can be anxious about being left alone, being anxious about being away from mum or dad, looking for that certainty because of how it's going to impact on them. Or the child that who's extra good because if I'm really, really good, mum or dad will get better. So how do we communicate? It needs to be staged information. To be told that they will always be safe or cared for, irregardless of what's happening, it's not their fault, and we are always open to conversations, which doesn't mean every night at dinner we say, okay, how was school, how was uh, the day? Now, any questions about dad's cancer? No, we're not going to do that. But we provide space and opportunity. We talk about and share events in a way that enables that to occur. For middle childhood, which is roughly 8 to 12, um, it starts to change. The need for acceptance amongst our peers becomes stronger and being different can be a big issue. So having a parent who's not well and not doing what the other's parents are doing can be quite challenging. There can be insensitive comments about, from other children who don't really know and understand. Um, and there's value in being brave. If I am brave, that's a good thing. So that internal putting pressure on. And at school, they're getting that message about, you know, come on, toughen up. You don't need to, you know, don't burst into tears at everything. It's not that bad, you know, they're just words. All of those sorts of things that happen in primary school. And there's limited capacity for abstract thought. But play and physical activity remain very important. And these are really important points to, to hang on to because these are the things that we can be doing with this age group that actually enable them to, to foster resilience. So information that's appropriate for their level of understanding. But in relation to that last point, that social and sporting activities are incredibly important and need to be maintained wherever possible. To be told that it's okay to feel sad. You don't have to be brave all the time. And again, given those opportunities. For adolescents and emerging adults, 12 up to, at the moment, we're kind of working on 26 years of age. Um, uh, I guess this is a very difficult time, we know, for most people. So things that can occur that are very stressful during this time um, are a bit of a worry. We know that um, their sexual identity, their social identity is very important at this time and it's just emerging. Their sense of who they are and where they fit. There is a risk of what we call parentification, that, that thing about um, stepping up, taking on the roles, doing more around the home, um, at the cost of losing you know, their parts of their childhood, not being able to do all those normal social and important things and stigma again. So information is important. Negotiation, as opposed to telling them what they need to do around the house, what would work, what would not work, and working with them to maintain their social relationships and their leisure activities, and that is really important. And opportunities to ask questions again. One of the challenges around adolescence is that there is this real risk of isolation. And I don't think there's a, a paper or a um, participant group that I've been involved in or a peer support group I've been involved in where what you 
don't, what you hear is that, yeah, well, I really couldn't talk to my friends because they really didn't understand. And this group is probably the most vulnerable to isolation and to withdrawing from their social networks or keeping all of what they're feeling inside. They can be very angry and, and quite challenging at times. And one of the things about this time period, which is a little bit concerning, is it's when they're most vulnerable to events outside of a diagnosis of cancer, but that may have a more permanent effect. So, you know, when they start to go off the rails a little bit, they may drive cars too fast because they've just got their licence, they may experiment with drugs, all of those things. And this is a quote from a young boy, a 13-year-old, who, you know, one of the things we remind parents is that there's children and adolescents don't have a language to talk about this. It's hard enough for us as adults. We have to learn the language to be able to say how we're feeling and talk about that. Um, and so I actually think this 13-year-old boy is quite amazing because he actually puts into words that whole sense of isolation in a really lovely way. For most parents, what we think is if we've got through the treatment, that's it, beautiful, we're right, we're done. But the work that Canteen and uh, the university have been doing is actually helped us to gain an understanding that there are some vulnerable groups out there where the impact is ongoing and we need to be doing more. So this is part of a program of work that's led by Pandora Patterson where what we're doing is looking at how do we ensure that we meet the needs of the families, whether it's a, a, a child that has cancer, a parent has cancer, um, and what is the impact on emerging adults. Now, what we found um, when we did this research is that if we looked at a group of young people aged 15 to 24 who participated in our study who had had a parent that had cancer, the parent was no longer receiving treatment for cancer and did not have palliative care disease, that they had four times the level or the incidence of psychological distress to an age-matched population. And this was fairly significant sort of finding and it left us with a few quandaries about one, what do we do about it? And two, what is this about? How do we unpack it so that we can understand that? I think the key message for this for parents is that what we need to do is recognise that for some children, their knowledge and understanding or their need for information doesn't go away at the end of treatment. So it is important to check in around that. So what were the factors that may have influenced that in this group? We found that females were more distressed than males and that the parents' gender was an influencing factor. So when it was dad, they were more likely to have ongoing distress. When we asked them what their needs were, it was around information. Now that's not just about a bit delivering information, but creating a space where they could have their questions answered, where they weren't worried about the impact of their questions on family members. Understanding the implications for the future. So these young people had very high levels of uncertainty. So not only about their future, but about their parents' future. There's no sense, really, that mum or dad is really OK. They haven't got to that point yet. An opportunity to talk about their experience, and that was very high on the agenda, and a better understanding of the disease and its treatment and why it happened. 
you know, yeah, but why did Dad get that cancer and what does that mean for the rest of us? So that kind of information and access to support. We're currently testing an intervention, um, which is a peer support intervention that we call TRUCE. It's an eight-week face-to-face group-based intervention. Week seven, um, a parent, doesn't have to be the affected parent, comes. And it's based on acceptance and commitment therapy. Fundamentally, it's about you can't change what you can't change. So we work with them to accept what's happened, but then to develop some strategies and skills to help them move forward. And the overarching aim is obviously to help them move through this step, but really it's about building life skills for the future as well. This is our target group, and I think uh, the main thing to point out is that our pilot data results are actually showing decreased levels of emotional distress, feeling better informed, and qualitatively what they tell us is that they're taking what we're learning, they're learning through this process, and it's using it outside of that. They're negotiating boyfriend-girlfriend relationships or learning how to negotiate with a lecturer at university when their assignments are overdue. The last little bit I want to talk about is resilience. We talk about resilience with young people a lot and we actually talk about resilience and how do we build on resilience for people that are diagnosed with cancer, both adults and children. And resilience is an incredibly important thing. We know that this is, if you like, the antidote to the other end of the spectrum. um, As I've outlined here, it's the thing that enables us to flourish despite adversity, adversity, that we bungee jump through life. Yes, there's these big lows, but then we bounce right back up. Our final destiny is not shaped just by a single event, but the consequences, often adding those together. And if we protect young people and children from adversity, this does not build resilience. Okay, so even though that might be the game or the aim, it's not going to happen. So what are the things that are important to build resilience in children? Certainly relationships. We know that for young people dealing with any stressful event within a family family unit, that if a child has very good relationships with others as well as their parents, then that makes a big difference. So for parents that are diagnosed with cancer, what this means is, is there another member of the family who can be the nominated person that is the person that they talk to? An aunt, a close friend, a teacher at school, um, a grandparent, who is their go-to person? And it needs to be someone that they have an existing relationship with, not one that you build around this. And being involved in activities, as I mentioned earlier, maintaining those important sort of social interactions, but also physical activity has a big impact on this. One of the things that used to be more of a challenge before is that there was a hesitancy to involve broader communities outside the family. And for those of uh, parents who have children at school, we do strongly recommend, it's one of the things health professionals come in quite strong on, is letting someone in the school know. Now, if you don't want to have everybody knowing your business, you may just want to let a particular teacher know or the headmaster. But if they don't know, they can't actually let you know or they don't understand what the changes, uh, what may be causing the changes that they're seeing. 
They ha teachers are in a position to foster resilience life skills. Um, and having a sense of a positive school experience. So if school is positive, then what that does is actually promote resilience. It becomes a safe place for them to be when things at home, it's not that they're not safe, but they're a bit different. But I've got this certainty in my life. And Charlotte here talks about the amount of support and how important that was to her. There are a couple of other aspects that are very important, and one of them is being successful. And that isn't actually about becoming, you know, getting the highest mark in maths. Um, it, being successful and gaining mastery over aspects of our day-to-day -day life actually build resilience in us all, but particularly in children. The more confident we feel to manage everyday tasks, the more confident we are in who we are and, and, and how we function. To be successful at something, no matter how small, is pleasurable. Okay, that's a really important point. So one of the things that is quite useful, as opposed to providing a list of all the chores that need to be done, is enable um, children to develop mastery around key aspects so that they have those opportunities to feel success and experience pleasure. Similarly, it's about contributing. Um, and Frankie, who's a 15-year-old girl, talks about just feeling helpless and hopeless, not knowing what to do to make something better. Children want to make things better. They want to do something. So giving them activities that are age-appropriate, where they feel that they're contributing and supporting the parent, is really important. So these are the characteristics of resilient children um, and strong connectedness to at least one adult, perceived area of self-confidence, and that's, in, in the Australian context, that's often about sport, particularly amongst boys, but not only, is that being able to be successful in their team sport or individual sport can actually foster resilience. Um, a belief that they can actually control what's happening to them is really important. Um, and in children who are more likely to discuss problems at home, so where the foundation is very much around open communication and sharing concerns, um, then that is a really important thing to hang on to and the others that you can see there. One of the things that we often advise parents is that the most critical thing is actually to ensure that the communication about the diagnosis and treatment actually comes from a parent. It's not the role of a health professional because that interferes with the parental relationship. However, as parents, you do need support, not just in this aspect, but um, in all aspects of managing it. So where do you find support to meet your needs as a parent? Certainly, it's important to talk to the specialist cancer nurses at the centre where you're being treated because they will be the first point of contact that may actually provide you with the information that you need or be able to put you in contact with the next step. There are counselling services, and I've already mentioned the Cancer Council of New South Wales, and they have a range of resources as well as being able to provide um, telephone support for you. So there's online counselling, they're available. But what about for the young people? Well, an organisation like Canteen can't find out that we have significant levels of emotional distress and not do something. 
So for children and emerging adults, that is those aged 12 and older, Canteen have a series of resources, peer support groups, individual counselling, online um, peer support, group counselling, and a range of um, resources. I have some example up here that are called the What Now Suite. Um, and these have been developed based on the information we gain from the young people, and they have influenced the content. Um, there's a whole suite of them that are available both online and you can ring up and get a copy. But fundamentally, it's about providing information that's useful, but also giving young people tips on how to talk to my friend about it. Um, or there's little cards in the back that says, thanks for asking, but could, I really don't want to talk about mum or dad today, and they can just hand that out. So very practical. All of the suggestions, all of the content has come from young people themselves. Camp Quality focuses on a younger age group, so for those 13 and under. And I really encourage people to remember the family GP. This person is critical. If you have a good general practitioner who knows your family, keep them in the loop. That person may actually be the one that the young people may like to talk to. School counsellors, and there's so much information on websites um, that uh, you can drown in them. So in summary then, the diagnosis of cancer is a life-changing event for everyone, including for the children. Um, in general, the normal processes where we have an active problem-solving approach is what's critical. And providing the right information, breaking it down into pieces in a timely way, always being open for the communication to occur, it certainly is within the power of parents to support their children to cope. It is less about the cancer, and that's a really important thing to, to hang on to, and it's about families. So strong families um, will remain strong families when we don't let the cancer dominate. We talked in the quote about um, no child can walk between the raindrops. Um, I, I think what we aim to do really is to see the extent to which we can provide some coverage for, patient, for parent and child. Um, but our long-time goal is really to see how we can turn that round so that we really do provide good overarching protection for the whole family unit. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. That was terrific, as usual. Um, my question is about uh, information. And it's interesting that there hasn't really been research about children and the effect of cancer for probably, you know, you're talking nearly 20 years now. And of course in that time, as you've pointed out, there are internet resources. So I kept having this horrible thought of a child who's, whose parent had been diagnosed with cancer, Googling the cancer and getting all of these horrible images and misinformation and getting terrified about it. So I just wondered if you wanted to comment about, about that. Thanks. It's an important factor to keep in mind when you're thinking about how much to disclose because very young children can do searches on the internet now. They're taught at preschool, believe it or not. Um, so they are able to, to look that up if they actually want to. Um, I think uh, one of the things, and I have some sort of tip sheets here, but is there are very good websites 
um, and um, it's steering children into finding those good ones. So letting them know, look, you might not want to talk to mum or dad about it. Or you might, if you've got some questions and you don't want to ask, this is somewhere you can go and get that help. And that's very much where Canteen is kind of promising it. Um, the, there is a wonderful website in the UK where young people have just shared their experiences. And, and they, the thing about the way that's done, I think, is wherever you're, whatever you're feeling, you'll find someone there who's describing exactly what you're feeling. And it's not all negative. You know, it is, this is where we're at now, mum's hair's growing back, it looks so much better and everything's more positive. So it's not just a doom and gloom type of approach. It is really important. I think the thing that parents and sometimes grandparents aren't prepared for is the matter of fact response of children. You know, so the child who doesn't cry, the child who just goes, but who's going to take me to sport? You know, because that's all that it's about. It's, oh, okay. Um, we want children to share their feelings. So how many of you have parents who have children that come home from school and you say, how was your day? Fine, you know, you've got to find other ways of getting it because it's not a natural thing. Um, so we do have to be careful about our expectations. Um, and I, uh, I give you an example of when we don't communicate or we think we're controlling it. Children are the biggest eavesdroppers that exist. If you want to know what's happening in a house, ask a child. And a friend of mine who was, uh, had just been diagnosed with breast cancer, but they were about to go on a holiday. She was taking a bit of time to work out what her treatment options were. And her son had picked up her iPhone to play a game on it and read a text message, which was about something like, you know, this XXX cancer that I've got. Um, they got on a plane, went on their... 10-day holiday. When she came back, they decided on the treatment options. So they sat both children down to, to say, this is what's happening. And the eldest child, who was nine, said, I know. And she, Why, how do you know? Why do you know? He said, I read it on your phone. And I have to say, she talks about just how terrible she felt that this child, who they thought they'd taken on to have a great family holiday and they won't tell them because it'll stress them, had for that time felt and thought his mother was dying. And this was their last ever holiday together. So it is really important to think very carefully about you know, that stuff about information and what people understand from it. Hi, Kate. Um, Thank you, it was a great presentation. My question is about the psychosocial needs of children and your comment about emotional distress and measuring that. Um, in the adult literature that I'm aware of, and I'm sure there's a lot that I'm not, I'd heard about the issue of also needing to look at unmet needs and using that more as a frame because so many people are going to feel emotional distress. What do you do with that information and how do you apply it? I just wondered if you might be able to comment on that in the yeah, context no, thank of children. Yeah, thank you, it's great. The information around the um, emotional distress tool that we used, the K10, the reason why we had that is that we were developing an instrument looking at identifying and measuring unmet needs. So that instrument's now been validated um, and it is very much focusing the work involved both qualitative and quantitative data on a large cohort of, patients, of individuals which enabled us to then work out what were the areas of needs so we could develop the instrument 
we have developed one for offsprings, but we've also developed one for siblings. Um, for that very reason, you know, that we need to actually have an understanding of where the gaps are. What is it that they're actually needing? Thank you. Ochni. That's what we call them, the Ochni and the Sukni. <laughs> Terrible names. Um, so my dad was diagnosed as the oral cancer in this April, and since my younger brother, um, who is 14 years old, has a like really bad relationship with my dad, so as me as a like older sister, how can I actually communicate with him? It's a really good question. Um, a really good question. Um, I think one of the things to reflect on is how do you communicate? Now, how did you communicate before Dad got sick? What would have been normal? And to be conscious of the fact that you're dealing with a 14-year-old boy. So what's going to be okay for them? You sitting down probably and saying, let's talk about how you're feeling, may not work. <laughs> In fact, I'm pretty sure it won't. Um, however, if you think about the things that he enjoys doing and would be natural for you to do together, doing more of that and creating those opportunities for conversations to come up. I do think it's important to be upfront and say, this is a lot we've all been going through in our family. I don't know if you'd like, you know, if ever you want to talk to someone, I'm here. But if you don't want to talk to me, I just want you to know about this group and they're there for you. So don't kind of feel like you have to own it all. And the other thing, the other comment that I would probably make is what, is what sort of relationship you have with the school and the extent to which that may be another avenue where he's getting support that may not be known. Hi, thanks, Kate. <coughs> I came along tonight because I was 14 when my mother was diagnosed with cancer and subsequently died. And... Um, I'm very happy to see all the things that are happening now. And that's over 60 years ago. Sorry. No, that's fine. And there's, there's a lot that hasn't changed. But what has changed is all this research and the support that is now available. So thank you. Pleasure. I, I think, um, and Jenny, thank you for, for, for sharing that. I think you're probably surprised about the reaction when you went to speak. And I think that's the thing that the young people talked about also, that when put in a space where they felt comfortable to talk, not only did they talk, but they were so emotional. Um, and I think that's the thing that is really important in all of this, is talking about it once starts a conversation, but it's talking about it many times that is actually what moves people forward and through and gets to a point where it's a different type of conversation. Um, I, I find it fascinating about what adults will tell you about when they've had a parent or die young, when they were young, whether it's of cancer or something else. Um, it has an impact and I guess what we're really trying to do is support people at that time but also to foster that resilience. We have to change the conversation around cancer in our community. You know, we have a cure rate of almost 70%, 66% across average tumours. It's 90% for breast cancer. 
We have to skill our community to have conversations about cancer that are supportive of the community and not those that make us feel frightened and anxious. It's a very different frame of reference from the way that we've been treating cancer and talking about it because it is the second major cost to healthcare <laughs> of all of the diseases. It isn't going to go away, but it's not a bad news story. It is a story where we talk about cure. Um, so we've got to think more, can I say, can we think positively about having cancer? I'm not too sure that we can, but go that far. But it is about thinking differently and thinking about our language around it. Kate, in, in relation to what you were just saying then, um, you know, that, that most, for most people this is no longer a death sentence. Do you think that's changed how families react when it becomes clear that the parent is actually not going to be one of the survivors? Um, and, and is there a vulnerability to a, la a layer of guilt that relates to that or negative thinking about the parent not trying hard enough or, or whatever? Look, I actually think this, it's a really good question, and, but I think it's also quite complex. One of the things that you hear um, sometimes young people but also um, adults talk about, I'm so sick of the good news story about breast cancer. You know, and it is a good news story and we do need to celebrate it because it is important. Um, but when you're the one that doesn't have the highly curable disease and, and you know, and when you're the child of someone who you know is going to die of that disease, that can actually make you feel more cheated and more angry. Um, it also doesn't always give you a place or a space to manage those feelings. So that can be more challenging. One of the um, areas that Canteen is working in and one of the resources is actually for when your parent dies because we have to acknowledge that not everybody will be cured and parents will die of their disease. So how do we support that person? Because if we think it's hard to talk about cancer as a teenager, talk about the loss of a parent. It, you know, your peers just don't know what to say. One of the programs we've been trying to get funded is a school-based program targeting initially high schools where what we want to do is have that different conversation around cancer. And I think it has parallels with anything. And it's about how do you talk about it when your mate's mum's got breast cancer? What do you say? What's a supportive thing to do? Um, what is it you need to do? Because at the moment, all our education of that younger age group around cancer is around prevention, which is incredibly appropriate. But the bigger impact in the community is how do we support people within the community? Oh, okay, thanks for the talk. I think um, possibly the question's been asked, but um, uh, the good news around cancer uh, does frame death as somewhat rather more dire than it ever has been. So um, thank you for sharing your thoughts on and talking about death and dying, but um, uh, where does a person turn, where does a health professional or a, or a parent turn to find someone who's expert in that area? Because we, we really, as a society, lack skills, I think, to... Um, at, you know, at the, and what is the appropriate time with a child? Um, look, the, the appropriate time to tell a child um, is something, there's no magic answer. It is in consultation with parents when 
and it's so variable. The age of the child, the maturity of the child, what else is happening in their life. However, as I've said a number of times, if things are going bad, they'll know. So, you know, giving any young person or child as much time as possible to prepare for that, and also going through what does that mean? So what does it mean if mum or dad is going to die? You know, um, you know, like tomorrow, and what does that look like? And, you know, what happens, you know? And, and the amount of information you give, again, is dependent on age. Both the Cancer Council information support, the canteen information, there are qualified counsellors in both those places, so they are a good avenue of support. Most of the cancer centres now will have a clinical psychologist uh, or psycho-oncologist they're referred to that can work with the family through that process and, and provide additional support and guidance. And there are bereavement services. There are a group of individual counsellors out in the community that um, will see families or um, an individual child, young person, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And that's where I think the GPs are really important because they'll know who's good at this, you know. So it's about your networks, but it's also about um, being very clear how the community can support you. Uh, a, a, a strong supportive community, you know, one of the things is we're very reluctant within our culture in Australia to take offers of acceptance, to offers of help. This is where you use those offers of help um, and you create your rosters and have someone doing something different and preparing meals. So as a parent, what you're doing is you're spending your time with your children. You're not doing the ironing and the housework and the, you know. This is the time to, to let those offers of help come forth. I hope I answered your question. Um, hi, I'm an oncology social worker, so I deal, I deal often with parents. Sorry, at the very end of their life. And so how do you, and often I go in and talk to a parent, you say, how are the kids? And they said, oh, I think they're fine, even though someone's within weeks or months of death. So how do you sort of broach that subject with someone yeah. who themselves can't face the fact that they're going to die quite shortly? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, one of the things is, there's a couple of components to it. I think one is absolutely um, reinforcing this is about the parental role. Do you know what I mean? We're not trying to take over that role. And, and I know that might seem strange, but, um, you know, it's my child. I know what's happening to them. You know, I know my children well. Um, I think what you then, what is important is to say, to acknowledge that you're the, look, I, I hear that you're telling me that they're doing really well. Um, they seem okay. Just to share with you that one of the things that we have sometimes found is that when children can appear to be doing okay, in actual fact, there's other things that are happening because they're trying to protect you. Do you think this might be happening with your child? Are they likely to, to try and protect you, to make things better um, by not telling you if they were worried? How would you know? Um, it might be useful to check in with the school. So sort of not telling them directly. There are parents who are adamant that their child or children not be told. That's something we have to respect. All we can do is give them the information that we have and as much support as possible as they work through the, that decision-making. Um, it does happen. Um, just on a similar note to that, um, I, I'm 
clear that it is usually the parent role. There has been a couple of cases that I've come across where it's getting to the point that the child is becoming harmful to themselves um, to a point that they're so distressed. And despite multiple conversations and information giving, um, the parent has relied on the coping mechanism of not telling them anything for so long that uh, they still are very hesitant to have that conversation. Is there a way, is there any appropriate way, I guess, I was trying to ask to, to kind of step in or to directly support the child in that situation or not really? Um, we all have a responsibility, you know, when you know someone's at risk, um, to act upon that. Um, so I think there's a couple of things. There's the conversation with the parents, both parents, to say, you know, one, we are very concerned. This is what we're observing. And um, we, have, we have a legal responsibility as a health professional that, you know, the, the, over, the um, well-being of, of young people are important to us. Um, then I'd try extended family. Is there another person in the family? Um, but the other thing that I would do is to understand more about why the view is so strong not to disclose. What, what is underpinning that really strong belief? Because it goes beyond protection. Um, there's something else happening there. I guess the other aspect about all of that, if you've got a child at school, um, is the extent to which you can encourage a member of the family to talk to the school to see if they can become more engaged, because that's part of, you know, that would be part of normal day-to-day -day activities of a school. There is variability amongst um, the amount of resources school have from a counselling perspective, so finding out a bit more about that is also useful. No magic answers. Unfortunately. And just along those lines, is there a role for is there a role for an health professional to offer to be part of the conversation um, if the issue is about the parent being so blocked they can't Yeah, it's a bit of a double edged sword. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, even with permission. Um, we would be really hesitant to do that for a range of reasons, and I'm sure there are people in the room that would probably agree with me. One of the things is it changes the dynamic, that the person delivering the news um, actually becomes the authority, the, the important person in the room. Um, even, you know, what I've observed is even when um, a um, adult has asked me just to be present to clarify any information, the change in the dynamics is because you're the expert. You know, you're the spokesperson. You're the person who is the font of all knowledge and all the rest of it. So keeping it very much around mum and dad and that parental relationship is really important. It can be, depending on the age of the child, important to give them an opportunity to talk to one of the healthcare team after. Do you know what I mean? If you've got questions, I don't mind. You know, if you want to go and talk to the doctors by yourself, you might have your own questions. Talk to your nurses. Check out with the social worker, clinical psychologist, nurse, how experienced the doctor is at communicating with young people. Um, uh, it doesn't come naturally. Um, and, you know, you can arrange that. But 
I really try to keep it very much within the family unit.